Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. I'm Chopra. I'm a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I'm delighted to welcome as our guest today, Dr. Peng Fan, who practices rheumatology and immunology in North Hollywood, California. He joined the Division of Rheumatology at UCLA in 1976 and was promoted to Professor of Clinical Medicine in 1991. He's truly a brilliant clinician, educator, and the recipient of numerous prestigious awards. He's also a Renaissance man interested in philosophy and music and many, many other things in life. So today's session is entitled Rheumatology, reminiscing about rheumatology, reflections on rheumatology, about the past, about the current state of art, present and future. We have about 29 minutes and we're going to try and cover a number of topics. So the first one I want to ask you, Dr. Fan, is looking back at your distinguished career that spans a few decades now, what have been some of the major advances in diagnostic tests in your field of rheumatology and immunology? Thank you, Sanjay, for having me. It's a great pleasure, and uh, I appreciate uh, your invitation today. I think that uh, rheumatology has evolved dramatically since the introduction of what we call cytokine theory of disease and the use of biologics. It has literally transformed the specialty. Prior to um, 1998, when the, the anti-TNF drugs were introduced, uh, rheumatoid arthritis was a practically poorly treated disease. Uh, people with severe rheumatoid arthritis have a 50% risk of uh, not surviving the next five years. And uh, at least a 50% reduction in all rheumatoid arthritis patients in terms of work capacity and they are out of the workforce. Today, if you were to present me a case of rheumatoid arthritis within the first two or three years of disease, I have a better than 80% chance of putting that lady into complete remission so that she will be totally asymptomatic and functional for the rest of her life. If I told you that back in 1995, you would think I was smoking something, you know? So it has been a dramatic change in our ability uh, to manage uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and we're hoping to make equal strides in lupus and the other autoimmune diseases. As you know, uh, COVID-19 has had a huge impact on all our specialties, and this affects also rheumatology. There's about a 52% decline in patients seeking 
uh, rheumatology evaluation since the pandemic, according to the ACR survey. I think that uh, one of the biggest advances in diagnostics of uh, rheumatic disease has been our ability to understand the autoimmune system so well that we are able to categorize previously poorly defined rheumatic conditions in better categories so that we can understand not only their current clinical picture, but to prognosticate what other symptoms will appear, uh, what, is, what kind of treatment would be the best. Um, but having said that, I think it is very important to stress that uh, the British Medical Journal was right when they call rheumatology the last remaining haven of the clinician. It is critically important that when you see somebody with joint pains or other rheumatic symptoms, not to just run a whole arthritis panel or have a cookbook approach, but rather to get a thorough history and physical and let your laboratory and imaging guide you as to what tests to do. Having said that, I think one of the major areas that the understanding of the immune response has helped is in inflammatory muscle disease. Back in 1975, uh, Bohan and Peter classified the inflammatory myopathies as polymyositis, dermatomyositis, overlap syndromes, and childhood dermatomyositis. We now know that these are broad categories that are really not defining the disease as well. When I see a patient now with inflammatory muscle disease, I perform a, a panel of antibodies that allow me to really much better appreciate what is going on and what the prognosis and treatment should be. For example, we do anti-synthetase, JO1 antibody, the so-called mechanics hand syndrome, uh, SRP antibody, MI2. A good example is anti-MDA5, which is used to evaluate dermatomyositis. Those patients, uh, even though they have very minimal muscle disease, have a very high risk for interstitial lung disease and a re reduced survival. So it's critical that we manage the lungs, even if they're asymptomatic at the beginning. Also uh, in the spondyloarthropathies, we're now doing MRI scans of the sacroiliac joints. If we look at somebody that looked like he is having ankylosing spondylitis, but uh, the x-rays of the SI joints are normal, because the MRI would allow us to detect sacroiliitis early, and we have the so-called non-radiographic exospondyloarthropathy that responds well to, to uh, biologics. We also are trying to develop biomarkers to allow us to decide what treatment is best for our patients. We now have an embarrassment of riches in treating RA with uh, a whole bunch of biologics, small molecules, and so on. And they're all effective, but they're all about 60% effective. If at the beginning of the disease, we can do biomarkers to point us towards using an anti-TNF or anti-IL-6 or B-cell or T-cell therapy, would have a much, much better chance of success. So that's kind of what I would say. Terrific, about terrific, yeah. So can you comment, you know, when we were in medical school early in our training and residency, we were ordering a lot of ANAs. Then we started to order SED rates and CRP and once in a while HLA testing. Uh, do those have any role? Is ANA being over-tested and people are then 
going in the wrong direction? Yes, I think ANA is one of the big bugbears uh, of my life. We get a lot of positive ANA people with musculoskeletal pain uh, being referred to us, and we have to sort out, first of all, why the AA tests were even done, you know? The problem with doing a test, as you know very well, is that even though the test may be very sensitive, for example, lupus is over 99% ANA positive. So it's a great test in terms of sensitivity. Friday afternoon, Dr. Chopra asked me to see somebody in the hospital with multi-system illness, and the ANA comes back fortunately negative at the same time. I can say, well, forget it, bye-bye. I'm taking the weekend off because it's not lupus. Yeah. So that's great for excluding lupus, but for diagnosing lupus is fraught with problems. And the problem is that the specificity of ANA for lupus is 85%. It means that 15% of normal people, you and me, have a 15% chance of a positive ANA. And it can be in reasonably high titer, like one to 320 or higher. Now the problem with that is that lupus is a very rare disease. The incidence of lupus at the highest estimate, which is young African-American women, is about four per thousand. So if we were to take a thousand people with vague nonspecific symptoms and we perform an ANA, we would be lucky if we pick up four patients with lupus. But we're going to pick up 150 people that don't have lupus just because the specificity is 85%. So the positive predictive value of a positive ANA for lupus is four divided by 154 which is 2.6%. If I tell you that there's a stock that has a 2.6% chance, chance of doubling in the next six months, would you put your fortune in it? It is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why ANAs are so problematic. Same yeah. with B27, by the way. B27 is a great test for severe ankylosing spondylitis, where it may be 80, 90% positive, but again, 8% of the population has a positive HLA B27. And we're lucky if we get a million people with ankylosing spondylitis in America, much lower than that. The estimate is somewhere around 400,000. You can see the problem with a positive ANA, uh, B27, somebody with nonspecific low back pain. We'll be making a wrong diagnosis much more often than the correct one. So we'll talk, uh, I'm gonna ask you about the biological revolution. But before we uh, get to that, uh, you mentioned COVID-19. Yes. Are your patients on methotrexate, biologicals, or perhaps even steroids, if we use steroids for certain rheumatic disorders, are they at greater risk of A, acquiring COVID, and two, of greater mortality if, if they get it? Well, the... Most recent surveys on this topic has been that if you're on a biologic agent that does suppress your immune response and you develop COVID, your disease doesn't seem to be much more severe than if you were not on the biologic. Now, if you happen to have a diagnosis of RA in our current day and age uh, and you don't have COVID, I think we feel pretty comfortable starting them on methotrexate or even on the biologics. But on the other hand, if they have positive COVID, 
many, many of us would advise you to hold off until you have a handle on the COVID infection before you start the biologic. It is very difficult to know what to do with corticosteroids, as you know. Uh, the, the problem with COVID infection is that it could be severe because the disease is severe. It could be severe because we have genetic problems with the ability to mount an interferon type 1 uh, innate immune response. Or it could be that we have other antibodies that are not effective. So depending on the right circumstances, if we think that the disease is driven not by the virus, but by the severe infection, then corticosteroids, as you know, may be life-saving. We use dexamethasone to treat these patients. On the other hand, if the disease is being poorly controlled, adding steroids may just make the immune system even more severe. So this is still a work in evolution. I would say that from the data, a drug like Actamera, NTIL6, may have a role in the sick COVID patient with rheumatic disease, and we may decide not to stop it. So we're hoping we'll have a safe and effective, effective vaccine or vaccines against coronavirus. Uh, patients on methotrexate, steroids, biologics, is there any reason to believe that they will not mount an adequate immune response to a good vaccine? No, uh, it looks so far that it is okay. Uh, in fact, uh, we vaccinate all our patients. The worry really has been not to give live vaccines, as you know, you know, in this context. Right. But for yeah. all these killed vaccines, for mRNA, for even, well, good point. I don't know about enovirus vector, you know. That's yeah. kind of still a work in progress. Yeah. So one of the things that many of us in medicine and science are looking forward to is the promise of stem cells in treating diseases. Can we grow cartilage? Can we coerce, you know, right now a major thrust at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute where we have two brilliant professors, Doug Melton and David Scadden, leading that institution. The major thrust is to coerce stem cells into producing insulin, artificial pancreas in a sense. And Doug Melton has two boys and they both have type one diabetes. But what about cartilage? You know, I'm, I'm the recipient of two total hips. <laughs> You're what doing great. <laughs> and I play golf twice a week. Yeah. Right. You, you can now cheat even more effectively. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, stem cells is interesting. Obviously, for diseases that are well-treated, like rheumatoid arthritis, we're actually reducing the number of in, uh, hospitalizations and re reducing the need for total joint replacement because we treat the inflammation so well. But the problem is uh, osteoarthritis, the big gorilla in the room. We are serving like 24 to 32 million people in America, including the uh, eminent Dr. Chopra, who get affected by OA. And uh, right now, we have no quote-unquote disease-modifying drug to slow down the disease. We have ways of treating it symptomatically, like injecting steroid in the knee or platelet-rich plasma, which, by the way, is working quite well for joint injections. But 
they are not anything that can slow down the disease or restore the integrity of the damaged joint. The problem with, with uh, using stem cells is not that they don't work. They work extremely well in growing cartilage. But don't forget, when you have advanced OA, your contour is already damaged. You have a bad knee or a bad hip where the, the hip is misshapen or there are bone spurs. If you coat it with cartilage, what have you achieved? You know, the biomechanics is still destroyed. So you need a scaffolding. So first you need to cut out the damaged part, put in a scaffolding that hopefully is biodegradable, and then put cartilage on top of it and let the cartilage grow uh, so that you have a new knee or a new hip. And that would be disease modifying and a wonderful thing to have. The problem there is that uh, what do we put in the joint? Now, we usually use mesenchymal stem cells because they are sort of uh, pluri, they are sort of pluri, they are multipotent, but they're not pluripotent. So they won't transform into something else. They will still produce cartilage. But then don't forget, uh, these cells can either go type 1 or type 2 collagen. So you could have high-line cartilage in the first year, and then the MSC uh, transform into type, I mean, type 2 collagen, which is high-line cartilage, transforms into type 1 collagen, which is fibrocartilage, and you get scar tissue. So the problem there is how to make sure that you have growth factors, whatever, to prevent the stem cell from migrating into a different direction. The same with the pluripotent uh, embryonic stem cells or induced pluripotent stem cells. Those studies are all being done. I review this topic just for today's talk, and I find that uh, there are only two studies that are beyond 12 months currently, one at 36 months and one at 48 months. And this is safety studies. There are no end result studies to show that stem cells really does much. It looks like they are safe, but uh, how effective it is, unfortunately, is still a work in progress. Perfect. The supplement vitamin industry is $60 billion industry. Is there any role for glucosamine chondroitin sulfate or vitamin D? Things of that. <laughs> well, uh, glucosamine chondroitin sulfate, unfortunately, probably fits into the category of placebo response. We know for sure that if you take radio label glucosamine and you take it orally, nothing goes into the knee. So how does it work? We don't know. Uh, there was one study where they give all the glucosamine as a single dose, like 1,500 milligrams a day or whatever they use, and a tiny amount goes into the knee. So if you're going to take glucosamine and chondroitin, take it in a single dose, don't split it three times a day. The data are very murky. Uh, there's only one study by actually a pretty good uh, researcher, Dr. Reginster from Belgium, that claimed that there is a product uh, called Dona, which is from Italy, and that seemed to have, quote-unquote, uh, some not only relief, but slowing down of the radiographic joint space narrowing. Most of us don't believe it. We don't think these are disease-modifying entities, and I do not encourage my patients to take supplements. Now, 
Vitamin D, as you know, uh, is a work in progress too. Uh, in rheumatic disease, obviously the major role is osteoporosis, where we want to maintain adequate D uh, for bone, bone turnover and building bone. For the other rheumatic diseases, it's probably still a good idea to keep up high enough vitamin D. In fibromyalgia, I do check vitamin D. If it is very low, like below 11 or 9, they are symptomatic. They actually have rickets. And the bone pain and the muscle pain gets better when you replenish the D. Well, I should be so lucky because most fibro patients who have low D still have fibro, you know, so that's not going to get better. So I think vitamin D is certainly reasonable as a supplement, but don't expect a lot from it in the rheumatic disease arena. Terrific. I'm going to ask you two quick questions. And the first one is, what is the role of the microbiome in rheumatic rheumatology. It's been called the second human genome, the inner bacterial rainforest. There's so many implications. It's one of the hottest topics in medicine. Yes. And as you know, the reason why uh, there's a microbiome evolution were two investigators, Carl Weiss and Josh Fox, who both should have gotten the Nobel Prize while well, Weiss is dead now. What they did, as you know, is, is they're looking at the phylogeny of bacteria they found that the 16S ribosomal RNA uh, evolved very slowly, and you can use it to actually identify bacteria. So we don't have to grow the damn thing from the from the stools. We now know, as you as you know, there are like several pounds of bacteria, hundreds and millions of genes in our in our body. And in rheumatology, we find that Privotella species, Privotella copri, may be a culprit in severe rheumatoid arthritis. When we give it to rats, uh, they develop rheumatoid arthritis. This is crazy. And uh, the hope is by using probiotics or antibiotics, if we can modify the, the uh, microbiota, can we help rheumatoid arthritis? In lupus, there's another bacterium, uh, E. gallinarium, <clears throat> which is shown in lupus-prone mice, that if you were to give that partic particular bug, they develop autoantibodies, early death, and lupus symptoms. If you were to eliminate it with vancomycin, they all get better. If you give a different bacterium, nothing happens. If you give that bacterium to normal mice that are not lupus prone, they don't get disease. So it looks like an interplay between the microbiota and the genome that is going on. I think this is really very exciting work and we're hoping to have more and more data. Today, we don't really have good probiotics that I can recommend that will change the microbiota and help rheumatic disease. Yeah, you know, the fecal microbial transplant is, of course, we know being used in refractory C. diff, but yes. there are studies, um, they're, they're small pilot studies, but there's one study where a, one stool transplant led to marked improvement in people with chronic alcohol disorder in terms of their craving for alcohol. And there's one study, that's pretty amazing, right? And there's one study that patients with severe alcoholic hepatitis, which has a 50 to 75% mortality, short-term improvement with steroids. It's the only thing we've had for the last 30 years. There's one study, fecal transplant, marked improvement, lowering of mortality down to like 20%. So 
So it needs to be validated. The other concept that is emerging is that not every stool donor is the same. There are some who have much greater biodiversity and they're being called super donors. I refer to them as super poopers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's take a final question. Um, comment on joint replacement. And the, you know, I'm the beneficiary of two total hips and I couldn't be happier. Yeah, I think one of the, the, the major issue is that total joint replacement is underutilized. I think when we see patients with osteoarthritis, it takes a while to convince them to have the joint replacement. And when they do, they say, Dr. Fan, I should have listened to you five years earlier. And that's really the, the major advance now in osteoarthritis management. As I mentioned earlier, for the other diseases where we can control the damage to the joint, the, 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 the need for uh, total knee or total hip has dropped, but for OA, we're underutilizing it. The, the prospective data on uh, hip arthroplasty is that over 90% of them work very well. The patient is pain-free and without complications 10 to 15 years post-op. And in fact, there are patients, and I have some of them, whose original implants are working extremely well 25 years after they have been put in. Wow. So I think we should every day genuflect to a big portrait of Dr. Chan Lee and just bow yeah. to him. <laughs> so he was well, a Britisher. He was a Britisher and was he knighted? He became Sir. He became I, Sir, yes. Yeah. He was knighted. Well, Deservedly so. I think he got the Nobel Prize, actually. Chan oh, Lee. I could look it up. I think he yeah, did. Yeah. No, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Now, total knee is the same. 90% yeah. leave in one year for total knee, but it takes a year for some patients. So I encourage them. They say, you know, Dr. Fan, I got my knee and six months later, it's still bothering me. I say, well, wait, wait, wait. And one year, they're better. So some people take a little longer. And again, the relief is sustained for many years. And uh, it, it, so I think both total knee and total hip are great success stories uh, in managing osteoarthritis. There's no question. We, we talked about this earlier, uh, not on this segment, but more and more medical students, house staff are now going into rheumatology because yes. the exciting revolution of biologics. You want to make just one final comment on that? Yes. I think uh, we were chasing the wrong targets all these years. We were looking at the immune response and trying to develop vaccines or ability to block the antigen or the cause of rheumatic disease. Well, there's a brilliant neurosurgeon, uh, uh, <coughs> Dr. I block on his name, but uh, Dr. Kevin Tracy, who came up with the cyto cytokine theory of disease, where he said, once the disease has been going on, it's really an imbalance between the cytokines that is driving disease. And we learned that lesson. And since the, 19, the late 1990s, we've been ignoring what is the causative factor in treating rheumatic disease. But what we can do to block the inflammatory stimulus or the immune damage and by using cytokines. And that has really revolutionized completely our ability to, to manage rheumatic disease, starting with 
antibody, I mean, and, uh, yeah, monoclonal antibodies and uh, receptor antagonists to tumor necrosis factor. We then went on to uh, IL-6, IL-1, B-cell modulation, T-cell modulation, small molecules that are taken orally, which may actually be the next advance, because who wants a shot when you can take a pill, you know? And they work, by the way, much faster than the injectables. And these are uh, drugs that block the Janus kinase pathway, the JEXTAT pathway, and they work every bit as well as uh, using monoclonals against the cytokines. In fact, even in COVID-19, we're beginning to explore using some of these uh, JEXTAT inhibitors to see whether we can modify viral disease. So the future is very bright in rheumatology, and that's the reason why there's such a, a renaissance now. Uh, when I started practicing rheumatology, no, most colleagues don't know what a rheumatologist does, you know. Now you turn on the TV and they say, talk to your rheumatologist. <laughs> so we have, we have gained some prominence, and Wonderful. it's a very promising thing. Thank you so very much for sharing your experience, your wisdom, your insights. I speak on behalf of everyone who will be listening, either live uh, when it's recorded, it's recorded and when it's uh, broadcast. So thank you so much. Have a great thank day. You. Thank you, Sanjeev. It's a great Take pleasure. Care. Thank you. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.